had to rethink everything about how we do business. It's almost like a meteor hit the entire planet. It's chaos, complete chaos. For businesses large and small. No revenue coming in whatsoever. Coronavirus represents an unprecedented challenge. From Fortune Media, this is reInvent, a podcast about fighting to thrive in a world turned upside down. I'm Beth Cohen. And I'm Adam Lashinsky. The coronavirus has wreaked havoc on businesses everywhere. Beth and I are here to bring you stories about companies weathering the historic disruption brought on by COVID-19. Some will reinvent themselves, others won't. It's all happening right now, and the stakes couldn't be higher. Adam, think back for a second to what it was like going to a grocery store back in March. This is a pasta aisle. Absolutely nothing here. Empty shelves, lines around the block, limits on how much toilet paper you could buy. What was really happening was shoppers were panic buying as the pandemic took off. There is lots of people and more than normal, even on their busiest day. In addition to having this very real fear of catching the virus, people were also really anxious about running out of food. I remember it really well. I mean, intellectually, I felt like we're not really going to run out of this stuff. And yet there I was one day at the corner store in my neighborhood buying cans of beans. And then the very next day in the Safeway supermarket, buying everything that I could, along with a whole bunch of other people who were doing the same thing. And what was maybe even more disconcerting is that while there were headlines about shortages at stores and growing lines at food banks, there were also these reports that farmers were destroying their crops. The New York Times even reported that not since the Great Depression had so much fresh food been destroyed. So it wasn't necessarily that the U.S. was at risk of running out of food. It was really a supply chain issue. On a Florida farm, five milk tankers dumped thousands of gallons of milk. COVID hit in the spring, which is a really important time for dairy farmers. This is a time known as flush. So cows are really at the height of milk production then. And as I recall, Beth, millions of gallons of milk were being dumped every day. Yeah, but interestingly, one place didn't have to do this, and it was Lando Lakes. I spoke with Heather Ann Fang. She's a senior vice president with Lando Lakes, and she says they didn't have to dump any milk. You know, we're grateful and thankful for that because it's it's emotionally and financially devastating to have to dump milk. Why not? Why didn't they have to dump any of their milk if the rest of the dairy farmers were? The short answer is they solved a very complicated puzzle, and they found a home for all of their milk. I don't know how much you know about Land Lakes, Adam, but it's important to know it's a farmer-owned co-op. Anne Fang will give us a brief history. So yeah, let me walk you through that. So Land Lakes formed almost 100 years ago because a group of Midwest farmers in Minnesota and Wisconsin primarily banded together to say if we work together to get our product to where the population centers are, which was in the East Coast, And by doing that, they were able to get their product to the marketplace where previously, as kind of separate farmers, it was going through distribution and there were brokers. And and so that was the beginning. So the job of Lando Lakes is to serve the 1,700 dairy farmers in the co-op by getting their milk to market. 
And so they can have comfort that as they're producing their product, it always has a home. And I assume this is the milk that ends up in the butter and other Land O'Lakes products I see at the store. Right. So one of the things that Land O'Lakes really prides itself on is taking milk, which is essentially a commodity, and turning it into a value-added product. So things that can sell for more money. Think of half and half, refrigerated desserts like pudding. Land O'Lakes margarine is made with fresh skim milk, blended with pure golden vegetable oil. And it's not just products you buy at the grocery store. It's also stuff like these enormous bags of shredded cheese or cheese sauce that they sell to schools uh, or restaurants. When you work with dairy products, I don't know if you're a home cook. I am. Okay, so you know that dairy is um, uh, can be expensive and can be a little finicky in the kitchen, right? So it's hard to melt down cheese. It might oil off. It might not hold. You might create a uh, sauce that then breaks apart, Uh you know, you might get a little film over your cheese if it's sitting there for a while. Uh, butter easily burns if it's too, you know, on too high of heat. And so we have a line of products that we call performance dairy that are really formulated for the back of the house kitchen. So a commercial kitchen into a restaurant that is a um, really beautiful melt and holds for a long time on a steam table and doesn't have that film over it. She just gave us this example about how Land O'Lakes sells to restaurants, but what do they do with all their products when the restaurants close down the way they did last spring? Yeah, so it's restaurants and it's also schools. And Heather Ann Fang says that's a big chunk of their business. Before COVID, it made it something like 40% of their volume. I guess I just assumed that if they couldn't sell their products to restaurants, that they would just pivot and sell it to a grocery store instead. That would seem logical, but it's really not that simple. It's a bit of a puzzle. Where's the milk? Where's it going? And what are the products that are now most relevant? What can we make that we can either store or make differently for the retail channel? That disruption has been very significant. And we have just an incredible team that worked so collaboratively to kind of put these puzzle pieces together such that we didn't end up having to dump any of that milk. So they basically had to remake a huge part of their business and they had to do it overnight. How did they go about doing that? So what they really did is they they went back to basics. They produced fewer types of products that let them just pump out more volume. You know, so we have a portfolio of products. Like, you know, all all manufacturers will have this, right? You've got your big products that sell most of your volume, and you've got smaller products that uh, maybe don't sell as much, but they're important for the variety um, and for a certain consumer base. We paused many of those smaller SKUs or items as a way to do two things. One, get product that was more efficient to produce through our plants so that we could take more milk, right? So if you're not stopping and starting production for smaller items, and you're able just to run bigger items for longer runs, that simple thing allows you to get more butter out, uh, to get more milk through the plant. They also took stuff they would have normally sold to restaurants and instead took it to grocers. 
and that's just because the grocery stores needed it so desperately. We took some existing products, like I'll, I'll give you an example. We have um, butter that's sold to food service. It's not in the four quarters uh, that you would get in a pound of butter in the grocery store. It's in a one pound block. And we were able to sell that through retail. Normally, I wouldn't be able to buy that in the store. That's correct. Oh, interesting. So that's something that you would normally sell to restaurant that you were instead selling into grocery. Yes. And this is, so remember, this is a time when um, there was runs on the grocery store, consumers were stockpiling, um, you know, so not all the retailers had all the right product that they needed to get on shelves for their consumers. And so for some of our customers, taking the one pound butter uh, was a way for them to have product on the shelf. So were you, so in the end, did customers end up buying more of your product or was it just in a different format? It depends on product and channel, of course. Butter has, we have sold significant butter this year, much more than we would have ever anticipated. As consumers shifted to uh, in-home um, and cooking and baking increased, butter has been one of those products that has seen incredible growth you know so we'll we'll sometimes talk about that as expandable consumption right if you have it in your fridge you'll use more of it so it sounds like you were baking and and have been i know i have been um there has been a lot of butter usage this year so overall would you say has this been is this a good time for lando lakes business or a bad time for lando lakes business overall it's been good but it's been interesting because the swings have been very dramatic. If you're selling butter to retail, you know, that team is on fire. If you're selling 50 pound bags of mac and cheese to schools, there's not a lot of sales happening right now. So it has been um, ultimately overall, it's been positive. probably another reason things have gone well for Lando Lakes, and I want to bring in Scott McKenzie. He's the head of the Nielsen Intelligence Unit. It's one of the big market research powerhouses. He says that during COVID, consumers have actually returned to some of these traditional brands. Generally speaking, in the consumer packaged goods industry, you saw larger brands with larger footprints, particularly in food and, and personal care items, household cleaning. In areas like that, we all gravitated to, to brands that we had known over time, those generational brands of trust. But no matter how big the company or how long they've been around, McKenzie says everyone is doing what Lando Lakes is doing. They're rethinking how many products they make. They looked at where the demand was in its immediate sense and said, where can we still deliver what people need, but make it easier for ourselves from a production point of view at our facilities? And how can we make it easier for retailers who are struggling to keep things on the shelf? And so an example of what they would do, and this is still underway, it's still underway very aggressively, I should say, an item that comes in 10 different pack sizes and the brand looks at it and says, wow, we can probably bring that down to three different pack sizes 
And that's much more efficient for us from a production and distribution point of view. And for a retailer who's still trying to just match demand with supply, that's much easier for them to manage in their own inventory cycles at the store level. If I'm understanding this correctly, in an effort to rejigger their supply chain, the easiest thing to do was to simplify the offering, and that probably hasn't disappointed customers too much. Yeah, and one thing that McKenzie also says is that going forward, businesses want to be better prepared. They want to be able to better anticipate demand. But customers honestly also have the worst case scenario on their minds in a way they just probably didn't pre-COVID. As things have stabilized, what's happened is you've got consumers who've pivoted to managing their own inventory. They've got a just-in-case mentality that they didn't have pre-COVID. And it's why I think in part, at least, that we're seeing consumer packaged goods as an industry continuing to track well above normal circumstances. Now, part of that's we're all at our, in our homes, we're eating at home, we're making a mess at home that requires cleanup at home, all of the things that you know, we, we know we're all doing. But as you look at the essentials, um, essentials are still running really, really well. You know, frozen foods, beer and wine, all of those things we all would like to have in our homes to manage those moments when maybe there's a bump in the supply chain that you weren't ready for. This brings us to a pretty surprising development for Lando Lakes. So to bring us back to my conversation with Heather Anfang, she says more and more customers are buying dairy products online. Perishable groceries has always lagged a bit with e-commerce. When you talk to consumers about it, they will say things like, you know, I want to touch the produce. I want to look at, you know, the expiration dates, for example, pre-COVID like low single digit percentage of sales for dairy and for perishable products went through e-commerce. And that has doubled. We, we definitely believe that the COVID environment accelerated e-commerce by many years for grocery. And we think that will stick. Beth, given everything we've just talked about, what do you think we can learn from the Land O'Lakes experience over the past seven, eight months? So I think as a consumer, it's made us really aware of just how fragile our supply chain and food system can be in a way I certainly wasn't before this. I cover the food sector, but I also am a cook and I'm a baker. Yes, I am one of those people that has sourdough starter. And I had it before the pandemic. Okay, so that's (laughs) gives me some credit. But I do think I have changed my patterns. I definitely now have bags of flour just like sitting on the floor in my kitchen just in case because I couldn't get it for those couple of months. You know, if you think back to the beginning of the pandemic, people started to wonder if our generation was going to be scarred the way the Depression era generation was. And if I had a guess, I don't think this is going to happen, but I think it's totally possible that 10, 20, 30 years out, our society at least will say, you know, we don't need 72 flavors of cheese in the cheese aisle. I think as a consumer, I would rather have consistency over all that choice. So I would give up my 72 different kinds of cheese in order to make sure there was always 
you know, the top five in the, you know, in the refrigerator case. Reinvent is a production of Fortune Media. This episode was edited and produced by Wyatt Orm. Executive producers are Megan Arnold and Mason Cohn. 